Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 219. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Alcano, our Father, our King. Here we are, Lord, in the home stretch of our journey from Pesach to Shavuot, from Passover to Pentecost, as we've been counting the Omer, counting down the days until we meet with you on the special day which commemorates not just the giving of your words at Sinai, but the outpouring of your very Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, into our lives at Pentecost is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Thank you, Lord, that these days of counting the Omer, they connect the dots like, a, like breadcrumbs, as it were, between the season of Passover and the season of Pentecost, Shavuot. And that connection is that during Passover, as we read about these festivals in your word, in the Bible, in the Torah, the season of Passover is the season of us being set free by the sacrificial blood of Messiah Yeshua, that sacrificial lamb who lost its blood during that Passover season so that the children of Israel could escape the slaver of Egypt, so that they could be set free from the oppression of the Pharaoh. Lord, that becomes the paradigm for us in our own personal lives of being set free from our own personal sin and shame. Your bloody sacrifice on the cross enabled us to be able to be brought into a relationship with the Father. And so it's the blood that sets us free. It's it's that sacrificial death. It's our um, uh, putting our faith in that sacrifice. So thank you that that's the season of Passover. And then Shavuot, Pentecost, commemorates those two great events, the giving of the law at Sinai, according to the rabbinic reckoning, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, recording for us in Acts chapter 2. And so we have this dual, um, uh, uh, what do we say, this, this celebration, this dual celebration of the celebrating the giving of the law and the celebrating the giving of the Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah in us. Indeed, without the Spirit in us, we can't walk out the Torah anyway. And without the words of God, the Spirit uh, doesn't have an anchor, doesn't have a foundation, something that uh, is objective when it comes to truth. So that's the connecting points. Passover, the season of being set free by the blood of Messiah. Pentecost, the season of being filled with the Spirit and the words of Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that it's the Omer that connects these two dots. And so by the time of this recording, when it finally makes its way into YouTube land and iTunes land, um, uh, Shavuot will be upon us. And so we bless you, Lord, for inviting us into this particular time. Um, be with us tonight as we embark on another study on a new uh, topic on one of the studies. Um, be with the students who have joined me tonight. Uh, bless them where they're at, strengthen them, protect them, and continue to give them a sense of um, of uh, urgency about the day because uh, we are still looking for that blessed hope, your, the return of our Lord Yeshua to planet Earth to, to usher in His kingdom. And so thank you for this opportunity to share with one another. Um, be with those who couldn't make it but wanted to, just keep them safe where they're at, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. My name is Arabin Lyman Hanavi, and this is another uh, live study on the topic eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. And we're going to be talking tonight on a new topic on the Antichrist. But before we start talking about this heinous, this evil man known as the Antichrist, this final wicked world ruler who's going to hit the scene, before we start talking and looking at his life and his uh, agenda, Let's first, let me as a, as a Bible teacher, let me just share my heart with you 
and invite you to ponder the true Messiah first, the genuine Christ, not the counterfeit, not the anti-Messiah, not the one who's going to come and try and replace Messiah and stand in opposition to him. Do you know the real Messiah? Do you know the true Messiah? Have you called upon him as Lord and Savior of your life? Look at these two verses on my computer screen. There's There are two passages I want to um, bring it to your attention before we study the Antichrist. I want to play a short two-part five-minute video. So it's the total is five minutes, but it's two two-minute videos put together. I want to play this short video on the true Christ using the themes of what was the condition of the world like during the time of Noah and what was the solution to the problem that they faced. Look at these two verses. In Genesis chapter... Uh, 6, starting at verse 8, we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. And then look at the very next verse. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. My question for you as you watch this YouTube video or listen to this iTunes podcast, do you know God? Have you found favor in his eyes? Are you walking with God? We're going to be studying about the Antichrist and end times events and the um, uh, tribulation type uh, activities are going to befall planet Earth in the future. And I believe in the near future. And the only way that we're going to be able to make it is if we have a genuine relationship with God through his son, Yeshua, Jesus. A second verse that I want to look at tonight is a very familiar passage out of John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, probably the most familiar passage in all of the Bible, whether you're a Christian or not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's keep going to verse 21. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. He who believes in him, speaking of this Jesus, this Yeshua, this Messiah, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Remember, God was judging the world in Noah's day. He was judging them because of their wicked sinfulness. Look what John records. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Whose side are you on? Ask yourself, check yourself. Do you love the light or do you love darkness? Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But look at verse 21, but he who practices the truth, what is the truth? The truth is the saving knowledge that Jesus can save you and does want to, that God has a plan for your life, that he has prepared a place for you, and that as you come into a relationship with his son, Yeshua, Jesus, that you can enter into that place that God prepared for you. The truth is recorded for us in God's word. It's the only objective standard that exists among humans because everything else is really subjective. But God's truth is eternal. He who practices the truth comes to the light. Jesus is that light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So as we look at these verses, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these, um, this record of the generations of Noah, this righteous man, Noah was found to be walking with God. Let's watch this short 
uh, five-minute video, and then after that, we'll turn into our study on the Antichrist. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Can I ask you a vitally important spiritual question? Are you walking with God? Listen to this passage from Genesis 6-9 as we talk about walking with God and finding grace in His sight today. Here's the history of Noah. In his generation, Noah was a man righteous and wholehearted. Noah walked with God. Essentially, what this verse is saying to us is that Noah, because of his being found righteous, was found to be walking with God. What did Noah do which merited him such righteousness? Our answer is hinted at in the verse immediately preceding the one in focus today. But Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. How did he find grace? Well, it has been rightly stated that grace is God's unmerited favor granted to us in spite of our sinful nature. Simply put, grace cannot be earned. We see then that in spite of the unbelievably magnificent instructions given him by the Lord, Noah walked the invisible road of faith just like everyone else who names the name of Adonai is expected to walk. He wasn't some superhuman faith hero endowed with abnormal amounts of trust. He was, in fact, singled out to receive a prophetic word about the impending judgment that was to befall all of mankind. Yet, once he received the instructions to begin building the ark, the word was out. He obediently acted in faith with regards to Hashem's instructions and the impending calamity, which was, as of yet, unseen. The main point of my short verse study is crucially important, so please listen up. If we would but put our trusting faithfulness in Hashem through His Son Yeshua, then His ark of safety will lift us and we will ride upon the very same waters of destruction which are coming to destroy the wickedness of sinful humanity. In the previous video, we talked about Noah and the wicked generation that he lived in. Sadly, we must also admit that the imaginations of the hearts of men are continually evil. And so, as the Torah has promised, God's judgment must come once again. In fact, according to the Torah, when the provision of a righteous and holy God has already been manifested among mankind, then the world is, in a sense, judged already. Why? Because rejection of the provision of God in the midst of our own sinful state of existence is nothing short of rejection of God himself, and rejection of God equals judgment. This is why the Torah says of the generation living in Noah's day, quote, he put the world under condemnation, end quote. That's Hebrews 11, verse 7. This is also why it is said of Yeshua's first coming, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth 
truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. That's John 3, 17 through 21, as rendered from the KJV. We learn from these verses that not only are unbelieving sinful men condemned by the provision of Yeshua's bloody atonement, but that Hashem's ultimate solution to the dilemma facing mankind today is accomplished solely by faithfully trusting and accepting His only and unique Son. Therefore, what is expected of us? The Torah is consistently clear on this point. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I hope that video finds its way into your heart, and I hope that you consider the choice that is before you. Do you want to find your place to be walking with God and be counted as righteous as you um, embrace uh, Yeshua, who is the only true salvation for mankind? He's the only name given among uh, only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, like Peter talks about in the book of Acts. Or are you going to be washed away with the wickedness of humanity when God's judgment is poured out? The choice is yours. Let's begin looking at our uh, new topic for tonight. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got the topical index pulled up for this particular study. This is Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. And we have now basically finished topic five, as of last week, Book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're now ready to turn to topic six, Excursus. Antichrist, according to Robert Van Campen. And I'll flash a little picture in post-production in the YouTube video afterwards. Um, Robert Van Campen is a, a Christian artist, I'm sorry, not artist, author, who um, passed away a little over 20 years ago, and he wrote a book called The Sign. I'll put a little picture of it on the screen later on. And in this book, which is an eschatology book, a study of end-time events, that's what the word eschatology refers to, he wrote this chapter on the Antichrist and his activities. And he used information from previous historical figures that we can recognize that the Bible itself uh, gives us as kind of prototypes of the Antichrist, forerunners, right? Just like the Bible always uses symbols and, and um, uh, what we might call types and shadows, like the animal sacrifices were types and shadows and symbols of the sacrifice of Jesus, of Yeshua. In that similar fashion, we find uh, other people in the Bible that function as types of Antichrist. So let's look at one of the more famous ones in the Bible. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to use these notes from um, Mr. Van Campen, uh, just like a few paragraphs out of the book. Uh, and we'll, this will be the beginning of our study. I don't know if I'll finish this tonight because it's like in my Word document that I created out of this. It's like four or five pages. But um, if we do finish it, then we'll we'll go back and begin to um, uh, entertain some more information uh, from the Bible itself. But for now, let's just look at these notes, and I'll read through these, and I'll stop and um, uh, add insight or uh, um, comment if needed, okay? But this particular section, these few paragraphs, 
are titled an overview of antichrist's strategy and what we're doing is we're still within the time frame if you remember from last week we're within the time frame of looking the last seven years of uh intense history of mankind here on planet earth uh some christians describe this as the tribulation the time or the great tribulation the time when um a lot of really what we might look at as really supernatural events might be taking place along with some really strange weather patterns um a lot of uh, wars and a lot of rumors of wars and a lot of famine and um pestilence and i mean uh, really what we might recognize as kind of book of exodus uh 10 plagues type of activity taking place on planet earth as we usher in and look forward to the um, return of Jesus Christ bodily to planet Earth to establish his thousand-year kingdom. So a lot of events have to take place in this top final seven years. And so uh, chief among those things is the bringing in of Israel to a place where she can once again wrestle with her Messiah. Who is he? Do I need her? Um, am I going to be saved in the end or am I going to be destroyed in the wickedness of humanity? Am I, am I going to be washed away in the flood like we talked about in the video that we watched with Noah? You know, in that story, in that video that we watched, in, in the way I narrated it, Noah was chosen by God and singled out to be a preacher of righteousness to that wicked humanity. And yet only eight souls were saved. Noah, his wife, his, his uh, three sons and their three wives. So only eight souls made it through that calamity. How did they make it through? They got into the boat, into the ark, and they rode upon the very waters that destroyed the rest of humanity. Well, the day is coming when another calamity is going to hit planet Earth. This time it'll be a worldwide again, just like before, but this time it'll be with fire instead of with water. And God is going to pour out judgment on wicked humans. The Antichrist is going to be playing a very significant part because he's going to be leading a wave of humans in rebellion against God. So let's begin to read about this individual and be, perhaps get an appreciation of, can we be prepared for this event? Or are we just going to be raptured away? Right. This is also going to usher in a discussion sooner or later on Yeshua's own words in Matthew which will then lead way to a discussion on the rapture topic. Are we going to be raptured away? Or do we even have to worry about that? I'm of the impression that we won't be raptured away instantly. There's still a lot that's going to take place and a lot that we have to contend with. But as Christians, we needn't worry because God has promised to protect us during that time. And at the same time, we might even lose our lives. We might even become martyrs. But even that is fine because as believers, we realize that whether by life or by death, our life, our, our, our destiny is in God's hands, right? So let's read this. Uh, let me see if I want to do it this way. An overview of Antichrist's strategy. The beginning of Antichrist's strategy, as seen in the preceding chapter of the book that I'm borrowing this from, this is from the book, The Sign, will center on the creation of a 10-nation confederation. What we're learning right up front from pulling these notes from uh, Mr. Van Campen is that the Antichrist is sooner or later going to start pulling his political strings to form his own sort of government, his own sort of um, one world leadership. And so it's not gonna happen right away, but it's going to take the um, collective effort of not just the Antichrist, but of Satan himself, right? Satan empowering Antichrist to be able to bring together what formerly or it seems to be impossible. These 
10 nations that represent the are, are, are represented in Daniel's visions. Remember in Daniel chapter two, there was this statue with 10 toes at the very end. There's the 10 there. That's the 10 nation confederation or coalition that uh, we're referring to that's going to exist in these final days. Likewise, in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel saw these visions of these four beasts. And in the fourth dreadful beast, there were 10 horns. Those 10 horns are, are um, uh, uh, speaking to this 10 nation confederation as well. Likewise, when we finally get to the book of Revelation, eventually we'll find in Revelation chapter 13 that these that the beast that comes up out of the sea has 10 horns as well, uh, seven heads and 10 horns. And so we see this number 10 again. It is speaking to this 10 nation confederation. So uh, Van Camp continues, this will be heavily Aryan Japhetic in its ancestry and vehemently anti-Semitic and anti-Christian in all its objectives. If you're interested in more information about the background behind the 10 nation confederation or coalition, I didn't bring it into this particular study because I don't think it's relevant particularly relevant for our study. You don't have to know about the uh, the um, ethnic background and makeup and composition of the Ten Nation Coalition, but it's very, very interesting information for those who are um, uh, wanting to know. And so if you write in to me afterwards, if you watch the video and leave a comment and question, you want to know a little bit more, I can pull some quotes from the book and talk to you about that. There's some charts that were in the book that talked about uh, which nations are kind of comprised that but that's not part of where I'm going to go right now. Eventually, when we get to the book of Revelation, we might revisit part of that discussion. But for now, let's keep going with these particular notes. Uh, Van Campen continues, Before the final consolidation of these ten nations, however, Antichrist will first overthrow three nations in the far north, where we're talking about the north of Israel, which more probably will become the power base which he will use to drive Satan's final beast Empire. And so contextually, we're talking about a place in the world that is centered in the Middle East, with Israel being really the bullseye. And so if you look at a map of all the nations that surround Israel, they're heavily Arab-centric, right? We're talking about Muslim-controlled countries uh, with all the countries that surround Israel in the Middle East today. And yet, beyond that, we also, we also have um, significant world players that are going to factor into these end-time scenarios with uh, Europe just to the west of Israel and um, Russia to the north, right? Turkey and Russia, Iraq and Iran close by to the north and east of Israel, um, Egypt to the south of Israel, Libya, Ethiopia, and these north er, northern Africa countries. I'll put a little uh, flash a little graphic on the map for you guys to follow along. So when we look at Antichrist's uh, power base and his nations and the uh, chessboard pieces that he's going to be using in his overall attempt to basically destroy Israel and wipe her off the map in defiance of God's promises, then we're looking at countries that are already in existence that surround Israel that are hostile in Israel. And remember, in previous studies, uh, looking through Daniel's prophecies, particularly, again, the statue of Daniel chapter 2, with all of the um, metals there, along with the correlation of Daniel's dream in Daniel chapter 7, and then corroborating that against the information that we learn later on in Daniel chapter 9's prophecies and moving forward 9 and then 11, 12 in the book of Daniel. A lot of information in the book of Daniel, right? You can't um, discount that. You've got to go back and look at Daniel's prophecies and Daniel's book if you're going to be an eschatology um, 
uh, buff, right? Someone who's interested in end-time events. What we're finding is that Satan has been using these world empires down through history, going all the way back. We could say we could say it started way back in the garden with Satan tempting our first parents to eat from the fruit of the tree that God said don't eat. But when we're talking about nations and what we might uh, term beast empires, we have to really start looking at um, ancient OG Babylon, right? Um, Nebuch Nebuchadnezzar is not New Babylon, not Neo-Babylon, but the original Babylon, the one that's spoken of in, in the book of Genesis um, with Nimrod and things like that. We begin to see these these um, these defiant people groups building a tower in Genesis, right? The Tower of Babel. That's that's the, the origins of Babylon. And then from there, we see world empires that eventually oppose God and oppose God's uh, promises and begin to persecute God's people in the form in the form of the Egypt, right? The Egypt is so moving from the book of Genesis right into the book of Exodus. We see the world power of Egypt enslaving the people of God, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel. And so thus begins our look at these world, these really what we might call seven world beast empires in the order from the oldest up to current. We have like Egypt, then we have Assyria, then we have Babylon, then we have the Medes and the Persians, then we have Greece, then we have Rome. And then after Rome, things get a little bit fuzzy because of the gap that we live in now. After Rome, we have various world empires such as the Russian confederations, the Ottoman Empire, um, the uh, you know the the Nazi um, Reich with 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 Hitler and such. Lots of world empires that find themselves in direct conflict with God's program and God's people until we finally get to today. And now we're we're in the place where we're expecting a final beast empire, the eighth beast empire who's one of the seven, but is a revival of one of the seven, but he himself is an eighth. This eighth and final beast empire is what we're kind of discussing when we look at Antichrist and his regime that's going to hit the scene. He will be the final beast empire that Satan utilizes like a chess piece on a board to try and defeat God and to subjugate God's people and to bring God's Messiah to his knees. Of course, we know, those of us who are Christians, and we've read the book, that this Antichrist will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. In fact, he's already a defeated foe. He just doesn't know it. Let's keep reading um, uh, this uh, excerpt from um, uh, Mr. Van Campen. This relatively unknown, powerful, yet generally respected world leader will then make a covenant with the nation of Israel ostensibly for her protection, right? Read Daniel 9.27 uh, or chapter 10 of the book that I'm quoting from. So at the beginning, it'll seem like everything is fine. This seemingly benign world leader will seem like he's on Israel's side. He's got her best interests at heart. He's look, he looks like a great protector. He's going to craft or strengthen some sort of covenant or something like that that we'll keep reading about. I don't want to get ahead of myself. After Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and he conquers Jerusalem and establishes his throne in the rebuilt temple after the age-long protector of the nation of Israel, which according to this author is the our Archangel Michael, Michael, but according to many other Christian authors is actually uh, the Holy Spirit or the church. I, I tend to go with the Archangel Michael myself for various reasons, but it, does, it's, it, it doesn't really matter terribly too much who you think the protector is. But after this protector is withdrawn, uh, Van Campen says, giving Antichrist direct 
and unrestricted access to the woman, who is, of course, Israel, and the rest of her offspring, which in the context of the um, reference that he's making, for, which is from Revelation chapter 12, the woman is Israel, and the rest of her offspring are both and Messianic Jews as well as Christians. And the Bible doesn't leave us to guess because it actually says those who name the name of Jesus. But after this happens, this author says, then and only then will Antichrist reveal his true identity and demand the world's worship as the only true God, small g-o-d. So what we're learning about this figure, Antichrist, he's going to be a political figure. He's going to have, he's going to be skilled in um, contracts and political affairs and, and governmental business and um, uh, a man of war, really. He's going to be a military genius. And yet at the same time, he's a, he's a consummate liar because he is, at some point in time, he's going to be Satan incarnate once Satan uh, enters into him, I believe, at the midpoint of this last seven years. But again, what we're learning is that before then, Israel will seem to think that he is his great protector. He will bring about what no other leader has been able to accomplish in that part of the world, which is a, a semblance of lasting peace in the Middle East between Israel and her surrounding neighbors, right? The Arab peoples that are surrounding her. Right now, there's no peace in the, in the Middle East. There's, and there hasn't really been any peace in the Middle East, and there won't really be true lasting peace until the true Messiah comes to reside in that part of the world. But the Antichrist, being one who both opposes Christ and takes his place in uh, opposition to Christ, right? He's the replacement in his opinion. Of course, he isn't truly, right? But he thinks he is. He is going to trick a lot of people into thinking that he truly is the Prince of Peace, right? He is... Um, He's God incarnate. He's the true Christ. And a lot of people will be uh, fooled into following him. So um, that's what we're reading about. Let's keep uh, going with this excerpt. Uh, Van Campen reminds us when that time comes, speaking about the midpoint, when he actually takes his mask off and reveals to the world who he is and starts going on this rampage to uh, destroy Israel and anyone who opposes him, right? When that time comes, he will seek to destroy every Jew every genuine Christian, and even every Gentile unbeliever who will not bow down and worship him or his image or accept his soul-damning mark. So we're talking about the mark of the beast. You've read about this. You've probably heard about this, right? 666, a mark on your hand or on your forehead that lest you have this mark, you cannot buy or sell, right? What will it take for people to realize during that time that if they take this mark, that they're actually setting themselves against God and his Messiah, Jesus. They will be fooled into thinking that this is the only way that they're going to be able to survive. Now, I believe that it's not that, and we're not going to get too deep into the mark tonight, so don't worry, but this is kind of a, just a reminder, a refresher, that the mark itself, um, it, it marks out, pun intended, those who have already made a decision against God and Jesus, and therefore, I don't believe any true Christian would, would find himself taking the mark in that day. On the other hand, the mark itself is spoken of as those who have it are going to perish in the fires of hell, right? They will, be, they will find themselves in a place where they are under the wrath of God and under his punishment. So when the Antichrist sets up this mark, people will have a choice, right? Do you take the mark or do you reject it? But the point I'm trying to make is that I believe that true Christians who have the genuine Holy Spirit inside of them 
will be in a place where um, God will uh, help them to make the right choice, not to take the mark, obviously, but um, to understand that the mark itself is not something that can remove their salvation. Uh, again, don't want to get too deep into that right now. That's for a different study. We'll get to it in time, but just let you know. Let's keep reading Van Campen. He has this to say. So, since Satan failed to eliminate or disqualify the king, capital K, when he came as Redeemer, right, we're talking about Jesus, then Satan's only hope now is to eliminate the king's elect, quote, the woman, that portion of Israel that refuses to worship Antichrist, and the rest of her offspring, i.e. true believers within the church in general, and these are those who keep the commandments of God. This is a quote from Revelation. They keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, right? And he references uh, Revelation 12, 17. And look at the further chapter of 13 of the book where this is fully covered. Of course, we're not going to read the whole book, but I recommend that you buy it, that you go out and get it. So I'll put a little screen grab of Amazon where you can see where the book's relatively moderately priced. Um, but it's a great book. It's only about, like I said, it's about 25 years old. I think the, the, the third and... Final edition came out in 2000, just before uh, Van Campen passed away. But um, what we're looking at at this point in time is that when the time comes for Antichrist to turn on Israel, to reveal his true um, identity to Israel and to the rest of the world, and he doesn't care at that point in time, he's just going to go out and begin this intense tribulation, uh, wrath of Satan poured out on anyone. He's going to focus, I believe, according to the Bible, most of his efforts on um, people who resist his leadership. So you don't have, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to just be Jewish or Christian to fall under his uh, uh, plan of persecution, uh, to be under his, uh, to be a, a one of his targets that in that day. There are a lot of people who are just going to resist him. who are going to say, no, we're, we're not going to take your mark. We're not going to bow down and worship you. Remember, there are a, a good number, X amount, I mean, endless number of other religions in the world today who don't want to recognize Antichrist as the one true God. And yet, Antichrist himself is not going to like that. So, let's begin to turn and look at an historical precursor, a prefigure, a pre forerunner, um, prototype, as it were, uh, to this Antichrist figure. What the Bible has already given to us by way of evil world rulers, we talked about Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all of those beast empires that Satan has utilized down through history, they've all had a few things in common. They have this intense hatred of God, and they typically have at their helm a wicked ruler who opposes God's plans and programs for God's peoples. And so they end up being utilized as pawns by Satan to subjugate the peoples of God or persecute them in some way or shape or fashion, right? So just look at those um, nations and remind yourselves of the wicked rulers who ruled those nations and how they directly negatively impacted the people of God, namely the people of Israel, in those particular times. Well, the Antichrist is going to be no different. And the forerunner that we're going to be reading about now is Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, if you want to pronounce his name that way. And his name Epiphanes means God manifested, right? Antiochus IV is his true title, but Epiphanes is the name that he gave to himself um, because he believed that he was God incarnate, God manifest, Epiphanes. Um, 
In fact, the word theophany and epiphany share the same root, the mean the manifestation of God. So Antiochus Epiphany is the forerunner of Antichrist. Let's read about um, him. He shows up historically, this is not a history lesson, but just a reminder. You can read about him in your Wikipedia or your, your Britannica Encyclopedia or wherever, just do an online search for his name. Or if you're familiar with the Jewish festival of Hanukkah that rolls around every year in the fall or winter time of the year, usually in the wintertime, Hanukkah commemorates the story of Israel uh, surviving the attack from Antiochus Epiphanes and almost being wiped out during that time period. And this was like a few centuries before Messiah, so say roughly 200, 300 years before the Common Era. And that's what we're going to be reading about. Antiochus Epiphanes sought to persecute the people of God and to uh, persecute Israel and to uh, rid her, rid the earth of them, and to um, uh, bring about all sort of calamity. Maybe he didn't know that he was being utilized by Satan for this purpose, but let's begin to read about the activities of this individual with a view towards, oops, sorry about that, with a view towards realizing that the Bible doesn't give us this so that we can understand about Antiochus Epiphanes. Rather, and I'm kind of giving you this can't include in advance, when you read through certain parts of the book of Daniel, and these are laced throughout this, this um, explanation, so you'll be able to see them. When you read through certain prophecies of the book of Daniel, Daniel foresees this future leader who from Daniel's historical time frame was Antiochus Epiphanes, and yet also from Daniel's perspective was the Antichrist. Are you understanding my, uh, my um, explanation here? It's what we discussed in the past as near far prophecy or now and not yet or prophetic telescoping. And this time I will put a little graphic on the screen later on in post-production where we have the prophet on the far left side of your screen who sees the prophecy that God gives to him as a mountain peak that's closer to him. And that's the near aspect of the prophecy. And at the same time, there is a farther mountain peak that looms taller than the closer mountain peak. And yet, from the prophet's point of view, there's this optical illusion created by the, the fact that the, the mountain peaks are in parallel to one another. He may not know of the valley, the gap between the two. And so, from his vantage point, the optical illusion gives him the impression that maybe it's just one mountain peak or one mountain range or one prophecy that pertains maybe to one individual or one historical event. But in reality, the Bible is describing a near event and a far event or a now event and a future event or a partial fulfillment and a total fulfillment, something to that effect. So that's what we call prophetic para- uh, telescoping. Well, Antiochus would represent, in my example, Antiochus Epiphanes would be the closer mountain peak, the smaller mountain peak in the little graphic that you're looking on the screen. And Antichrist, the future Antichrist, would be the taller mountain peak. And so when we read through the book of Daniel, we have to ascertain, is Daniel seeing the Antiochus Epiphanes, who's future to him, or is he seeing Antichrist, who's also future to him, Daniel? And in reality, sometimes there's an overlap, and sometimes there's a partial fulfillment in Antiochus and a future and total fulfillment in Antichrist. So that's where we're going with this. Okay, so you ready? Here we go. Students of scripture have long noted the striking parallels between the character and activities of Antichrist during the end times that we're going to be reading about and those of another despot Antiochus Epiphanes who conquered and ravaged Israel 
and the temple during the second century BC. And remember, the ruler of the Greek Syrian nation, uh, Antiochus, was he's the fifth beast empire referred to in the previous chapter. And so, when I talked about those um, beast empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, if you're counting, and I'll put a little graphic on the screen so you can follow along. The fifth one that I named is Greece. Antiochus Epiphanes comes out of this Greek uh, beast empire, even though he himself actually is a ruler of Syria, right? But his the from the beast empire's perspective, he comes out of, or the metals in Daniel's, uh, Daniel chapter 2 statue, the Nebuchadnezzar statue, it's the um it's the middle that corresponds with Greece. Um the fifth the fifth of the seven, if we count seven from John's perspective in the book of Revelation. All right, so um Van Dyck Campen continues, although from Daniel's perspective, the events that he foretold concerning Antiochus were still future, looking to the reign of Antiochus in the second century, then it is clear for us from the language in the following verses that we're going to be studying here that Daniel's real focus moves even then farther into the future, specifically to the last days in the time of Antichrist. So that's what I meant by the prophetic telescoping. When you read the prophecies in the book of Daniel, are you reading about Antiochus Epiphanes? The answer is yes. Are you reading about Antichrist in the future? The answer is also yes. How can you tell the difference between the two? Well, there's a little bit of overlap on purpose. There's type and shadow. There's um, prototype and and type. There's um, a forerunner and then uh, fulfillment. There's partial fulfillment and total fulfillment, et cetera, et cetera. So let's look at some of these um, details using uh, the, the text itself. So this is a quote from... Um, the book of Daniel, quote, and some of those who have insight and in brackets, uh, Van Campen has inserted his own understanding of this part of the book of Daniel, of the Bible. So in brackets, um, Van Campen says Jewish believers, speaking of some of those who have insight, he's talking about Jewish believers. And for the most part, I agree with uh, Van Campen's uh, assessment and interpretation. So I just left them in to my quote here. So Daniel continues, some of those who have insight, i.e. Jewish believers, will, f will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them, i.e. the many, the nation of Israel, to make them pure until the end time. Let me pause and interject. Remember, the coming persecution on the in the end times of the world, uh, i.e. what Christians have been taught as the Great Tribulation or uh, the time of persecution or the wrath of Satan or the wrath of God, etc., etc., what this will enable God to do through Antiochus, I'm sorry, through uh, Antichrist, is allow Israel to be brought to a place where she finally accepts her Messiah. She's brought to her knees in repentance um, because of, of not just her eyes being open to the fact of her um, guilt and her, her shame and her, her, her utter, um, uh, what we might call reliance and dependency upon God, her, her bankruptcy, the fact that she has nothing. The fact that she put her trust in the Antichrist and, or in a false Christ, and now she's find her, finds her, find herself sorely disappointed and persecuted and, and to the point of you know, two-thirds of Israel is going to be wiped out. So she needs to be refined and purified and purged. And so that's why Daniel talks about that this purging and refinement, the time known as Jacob's trouble, uh, this intense uh, persecution of Israel. 
which spills out into the rest of the world, right? And persecution of Christians as well. To refine her. The church is also in need of refinement and purging because there are too many within the church who are professing Christians, who are playing uh, Christian. They're just playing church. They don't really have a relationship with God. They don't really have a relationship with Jesus. They're just, um, they're going through the motions. And so this time period is needed. The crucible, what I'm describing, is needed to try them and to test them and to allow them to, um, come to a place where they can make a, a genuine decision for Messiah. Let's continue with this quote from Daniel. So, because it is still to come at the appointed time, uh, we can be sure that this is uh, going to happen, right? Remember, God's words are not going to fail. God's words are true. God describes things before they even happen. So, we can have certainty that um, what we're reading about, even if we have differences of opinion and interpretation about how these events are going to be played out, right? Is it post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, um, pre-wrath, you know, when's the rapture going to place? Is there, when's the rapture going to take place? Is there even going to be a rapture? Um, what's going to happen with God's people? Are they going to be taken out of the way? Are they going to be supernaturally protected throughout the entire thing? Are we talking about the Goshen principle? Like we read about in the book of Exodus, where God's people are supernaturally protected from the 10 plagues. What's going to be happening during those days? We have a lot of differences of interpretation and opinion within Christian circles and eschatological discussions, to be sure. Yes. But what we can all agree on is that, is that God's word is true and that it will happen whether you believe it already happened in a preterist fashion or you believe it's still to happen in the future. Either way, you believe that God's word is reliable. And so let's agree on that part. Let's keep reading God's words, right? First, we'll start with a little uh, quote here, or bracket insert from Van Campen. Here is where Daniel shifts from Antiochus to Antichrist. So um, kind of perk your ears up for this particular part. And most biblical um, prophecy scholars agree with a lot of these inserts here that Van Campen puts in his own book, the shift from Antiochus to Antichrist. Remember, type and shadow, prototype and, and uh, actual fulfillment. Daniel continues, then the king, that is Antichrist, according to Van Campen, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, small g-o-d, and will speak monstrous things against the god, capital G, of god, small g, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. That's Daniel 11, 35 and 36, emphasis added by Van Campen himself. So what we're beginning to see, and we'll keep looking at this, we've got about 20 more minutes, 15 more minutes left in this study. We'll keep looking at this precursor to the Antichrist, who, according to my understanding of prophecy, which I take the futurist perspective, remember those four? There's preterist, there's historicist, there's idealist, and then there's um, futurist in no particular order. The preterist version of end-time prophecy believes that most, if not all, of Daniel's prophecies, as well as the words of John the Revelator in the book of Revelation, all of that has already taken place in the first century. 70 AD, destruction of the temple. 130s AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, the plowing under, the kicking out of the Jewish people. Basically, the destruction of um, Judaism as a religion. Um, all of that is past history, and there's not very much to look forward to other than perhaps maybe the return of Christ bodily to earth and the establishment of his kingdom, something like that. In other words, the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. But everything else is already past history. That's according to the preterist perspective, which I do not espouse to. I recognize some of the strengths 
that preterism brings to the table, such as some of the words of Yeshua that we're going to be reading about in Matthew 24 in our next study that were already fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, etc., etc. But as a whole, I believe that most of what Daniel's writing about, as well as most of particularly what uh, the book of Revelation wrote about, uh, John, is still future. The final 70th week is just that, future. So we're reading about the Antichrist who is to come, but we're using Antiochus, who was a type of Antichrist who already came. So we're allowing the Bible to inform us of what's going to happen in the future. And why, let me interject before I uh, continue with Van Kempen, why are we interested in Antiochus Epiphanes so much? After all, he's already come and gone, right? He's past history. Here's the reason why. It's because of what Yeshua himself said in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the uh, speak, sitting, standing in the uh, temple, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I'm paraphrasing. I may have butchered the verse there. But what the master was cluing us into is that the events surrounding the um, uh, movements of Antiochus Epiphanes, which by Yeshua's day was already past history, but it was very recent history, right? 200 years just prior to Yeshua speaking those words. Antiochus had already ravaged through Israel and Jerusalem and desecrated the temple, etc., etc. You can read about that again in your history books or in the book of uh, uh, of Maccabees that you can find in other uh, versions of the Bible. Go back and read about him. But what Yeshua was reminding us of is that those events of Antiochus Epiphanes and the desecration of the temple and the and the um and, uh, uh, the desolation and all that those events that triggered the intense uh, campaign against Jerusalem the surrounding of Jerusalem by her armies by armies by her enemies etc all of that was meant to inform us that we need to as Bible students today go back and read through the book of Daniel with a view towards coming events now of course in Yeshua's day the immediate events to occur was the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem shortly thereafter in the 130s so Yeshua's words came to pass very immediate to those of uh, uh, believers and those people dwelling in Jerusalem right then but there wasn't the total impact of this worldwide subjugation of peoples and languages and tongues like John talks about, the worldwide uh, imposing uh, and establishing of a mark like John talks about, the buying and selling that was restricted, um, the image that was set up and things like that. There are a lot of conspicuous details that Jesus talks about that John fills in with the revelation as well that didn't take place that give us the understanding that it was partially fulfilled in Yeshua's day in 70 AD destruction and then 130s, but there's a fuller final fulfillment that is yet awaiting us, right? So that's why we're turning to Antiochus Epiphanes in the book of Daniel again, because Yeshua himself gave us that clue when he says, go back and read Daniel, read him and understand, which when you read through Daniel, you read about Antiochus Epiphanes with a view towards the future Antichrist. The guys following me? Are we all on the same page of music? All right. Let's uh, continue reading through uh, Van Campen. He says, in addition, Daniel establishes this parallelism, right? The parallelism created by the type, which is Antiochus, and antitype, which is, uh, I'm sorry, type, which is Antichrist, and, and uh, antitype, which is, uh, uh, or shadow, which is um, Antiochus himself. 
the way of a forerunner, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, the forerunner, the the the, the um, precursor, and then we have the the fullest uh, uh, revelation, which is the Antichrist himself, the Antichrist proper with a capital A. So um, that's what we call parallelism. So this parallelism referred to both Antichrist and Antiochus as quote a small horn in quote. When Daniel talks about a small horn or a little horn in his prophecies. He is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, who hit the scene very close shortly after Daniel wrote these words, but, whose history to us now, but the farther peak in that little graphic with the two mountain peaks, the larger uh, backward, the one to the farthest right of the screen, the, the taller mountain peak is uh, Antichrist, capital A. Uh, Van Campa continues, it becomes clear from the context of these two separate references to the small horn that the little horn of Daniel 7, right, see verses 8 through 27, is in reference to Antichrist, while the small horn of chapter 8, see verses 9 through 26, is in reference to Antiochus. So, are you following along? I hope you're not getting lost. Type in shadow, uh, partial fulfillment, uh, complete fulfillment. This way, the word of God can be reused as a word. It's almost like it's recycled. God can give one prophecy to the prophet, and yet the prophecy contains a partial fulfillment for one event, one historical event, and then contains complete fulfillment in a final event. And so we, we as the prophecy students, we have to look for little kind of like little cues in the prophecy that let us know, is this the near event? Is it the far event? Is it the partial fulfillment? Is it the total fulfillment? Was there only one event? Are there more than one event that this could prophesy about? For instance... In uh, the book of uh, Third John, I believe it's Third John. It might be first or second, but it's in the in one of the smaller epistles, not the book of Revelation, and not the book of John in the Gospels, but one of the smaller first, second, or third John. I'll flash a little reference on the screen because I can't remember off the top of my head. But John talks about that there are many antichrists among you, speaking of believers, right, the brethren, and we know that they're antichrists because they went out from us, they left us, they they started out as part of our group, and then they left the group. They are, they are antichrist. They are opposed to Christ. They set themselves over and against Christ. But John says there are many of them. Even in, in like fashion, Paul talks about the spirit of antichrist is already ex exists in the world today in his, in his letters to the Thessalonian church. The spirit of antichrist. So 2,000 years ago, we already had both the spirit of antichrist as well as many antichrists, plural, that were already in existence. And yet, that's not to be confused with the final Antichrist, capital A, who will hit the world scene sometime in the near future, I believe. So, the Bible gives us clues or identifying markers or characteristics so that we can be able to identify in advance and be prepared as Bible students, those who would not be in the dark, um, what to look for, look what to look out for when this final world ruler hits the scene. So let's continue. We're talking about parallelism and things like that. The parallelism between Antichrist capital A and Antiochus is indeed striking. We know, however, uh, that it is more than coincidence, and in fact reveals the intended meaning of Scripture, right? Because Christ specifically refers to Daniel's prophecy and draws upon this parallelism with his reference to the abomination of desolation when, and I mentioned this earlier, when speaking about the Antichrist in Matthew 24, 15. 
So that clue, that cue lets me know that we're on the right track, right? How do we learn about the future Antichrist? Study the Bible in regards to the previous prototype Antichrist. Specifically, let's look at Daniel's prophecy because there's a lot of information there about the coming Antiochus person, Antiochus Epiphanes, as it paints a picture of the future. So again, Antiochus was probably not aware. He probably didn't read through the book of Daniel's prophecies. He probably didn't care, but he was probably not aware of the things that he was doing in persecuting the people of God, in in uh, surrounding Israel and, and desecrating the temple and stuff. He probably wasn't aware that he was doing one of two things. One, he was, he was directly fulfilling prophecy that was already given in the book of Daniel. And two, he was forming a prototype for a future ruler who would walk in his footsteps and do the exact same thing. And likewise, I don't believe that the future Antichrist will really seek to read through and study the book of Daniel and the Bible and history, history books and Antiochus 15 so that he can make sure he follows after his precursor. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Instead, the wicked ruler who's going to hit the scene in the future, he'll probably simply just go about his business doing what he's satanically inspired to do. He's got his own agenda, but it will be that God's word will be fulfilled in the activities of this future Antichrist, this future world ruler. He will not even know that he's doing those same two things, as it were, that his precursor did. Number one, he's fulfilling prophecy. Number two, he is imitating the guy who came before him. So that's what that's what we're looking at. Antiochus will be setting the stage for Antichrist. Antiochus is fulfilling biblical prophecy about that was written about him, whether he knew it or not. And at the same time, he's forming a, an example that the future Antichrist is going to step into, a, an example that future Antichrist is going to follow. And this is all brought to our uh, knowledge and um, uh, 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 our attention by the Master himself here in the book of Matthew, which we will turn to uh, either next week or the week following when we begin to look more intensely at um, uh, the uh, uh, what we call the Olive Discourse. Let's keep reading. We've got about maybe five or seven minutes left in this particular study. I'll read maybe another paragraph. Um, Van Campen continues, Daniel refers to Antiochus as, quote, the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11.31, and again to Antichrist using the exact same name in 12.11. So that's how we know there's some type and shadow going on, some partial and total fulfillment. We see that the phrase Antiochus, I'm sorry, the phrase um, abomination of desolation is, is, is both. And so Yeshua picks up on that same phrase we already read about. Uh, Van Campen continues, the near fulfillment of this event. Notice he says near in quotes. That's like what I keep talking about, near slash far. Or alternately, you may have heard your pastor call it now slash not yet. It's, it's what we talk about, and I'll put a little graphic on the screen to describe this as well. It's what we talk about, the overlap of prophetic truths where the future has invaded the present in partial fulfillment, and yet it's still future when it comes to total fulfillment. There's kind of almost like a loop, almost like a feedback loop that's created. So in the little graphic that I'm going to put on screen, we'll see that in the first century with Yeshua bringing in, this is a good example, when Yeshua taught the kingdom of God is now with you, the kingdom of God is in your midst, when Yeshua brought the kingdom of his father to the people in the first century, 
on the one hand, on the near slash now aspect, the kingdom was there in their midst. Jesus was the walking, talking, living embodiment of the kingdom of God that was available to them uh, in your face for the first time. I mean, it was built upon the, the promises that were already given to ancient Israel, uh, carried along through the promises given through David, the Davidic promises, the Messianic promises, etc., etc. But now Jesus was bringing it to its fullness in the first century, but only in partial fulfillment. So it's full and yet partial at the same time. It's kind of like a, uh, like I say, near but not near but far, now but not yet. Um, the kingdom was now, but yet the kingdom is still 2,000 years away from Messiah's perspective in the first century. Are you following along with what I'm saying? So the kingdom is here, but it's not here. It's only here spiritually. It isn't here physically yet, per se. The same thing is kind of going on with the Antichrist. The near fulfillment was Antiochus. That's what Daniel's seeing when he talks about the little horn and the abomination of desolation, etc. And yet the far fulfillment is still future to us even. It's right around the corner, I believe. And so that's what Van Campen's picking up on when he says, the near fulfillment of, these, of this event as first predicted centuries earlier by Daniel was, of course, in 168 BC with the desecration of the temple by Antiochus. So we read about that in history. It's past history to us. We can read about his activities in the books of Maccabees as well as the, the extra biblical books to most Christians' Bibles. Continuing, the parallel far fulfillment of this event will come at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week when Antichrist desecrates the rebuilt temple in the last days. So that's where we see the parallelism. We have a wicked ruler in both cases, both the near event, and I'll close with this. I'll stop here when this uh, paragraph, and we won't we'll pick this up again next week. In the near aspect of the parallelism that's being drawn between the Antiochus figure and the Antichrist figure, in the near aspect, there's a wicked ruler, Antiochus, there's the people of God, Israel, there's the temple itself, and there's the physical defilement of the temple by that wicked ruler, Antiochus. In the far fulfillment, speaking of Antichrist with a capital A, which is still future to us here in the year 2023, there's the wicked ruler Antiochus, I'm sorry, Antichrist, there's the people of God, Israel, that is in the Middle East today, and we still don't have the physical temple or some structure that allows for sacrifices, but we believe that something will be constructed shortly before uh, the seventh week commences or maybe right after the covenant is created with Antichrist in Israel, that allows the sacrificial system to start up again. So that will kind of be, in my opinion, as I say in closing, that um, strengthening slash creation of the seven-year contract with Israel and her surrounding neighbors, which allows or fosters a rebuilt temple or a temple to begin construction, whatever could be, be, could be under construction prior to the, the contract, whatever. But either way, some of those events, as they become known to the public, which, I mean, let's be honest, can Israel do anything in secret? When these events become known to the public, then we will begin to realize, we as Christians who have been, who've been reading our Bibles and we've been studying these, these topics, with the, we've been studying the far, I'm sorry, we've been studying the near um, aspects with Antiochus with the view towards the far, which is the Antichrist. We will have some inkling of, of knowledge of, hey, this looks like prophecies 
starting to unroll on un, uh, 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 before our very eyes, right? Starting to 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 happen. Um, God's clock has started ticking again, as it were. And so we'll realize that maybe 70th events, 70th week of Daniel events are either right around the corner or we're already in the middle of them or um, well, not quite the middle, but we're already, they've already begun or something like that. So in closing, what we're going to begin to continue looking at is this ancient historical despot, this wicked ruler known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted the people of God and desecrated the temple of God in Jerusalem with a view towards the future coming Antichrist, capital A, who's going to do some similar things. He's going to enter into some kind of arrangement with the people of God. He's going to set up his, his headquarters in Jerusalem. He's going to turn on the people of God and desecrate the temple and bring the sacrifices to a, a halt and then begin persecuting the people of God, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that's where we're going to be going uh, next week. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and this is a look at a topical study of Trinitarian discussions. Remember, I did a, a three-year-long running study entitled Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, where we looked at 
Trinitarian topics, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from the Trinitarian perspective. I myself am a, tr am a Trinitarian believer. I believe that God is one, yet God is tripart. And yet we're using now this website known as biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, where we look at passages that are otherwise interpreted by Trinitarian believers as just that, Trinitarian. And yet Biblical Unitarian is a non-Trinitarian denomination. They claim to be Christian, which I believe they are, and yet they reject God as Trinity. They say God is unity. God is um, numerically one. Uh, he's not a plural of persons. He's just one person. And so we've been challenging their perspective, refuting some of their theology at times, but at the other times, just gently correcting their perspective from the Bible. My aim, as I prep myself for what we're about to look at, my aim is not to distance and ostracize biblical Unitarian Christians, rather to bring them into a better, stronger understanding of who God is and to help them understand that there is a better way to read their Bible and to understand it so they can come to the um, acknowledgement of God as Trinity. Um, I believe they're shorting, they're shortcutting themselves by rejecting the mysterious revelation that God has given to us, that God is Trinity, that he's one yet three yet one. And so just in, um, again, by way of overview, and I'll flash a little uh, graphic on the screen that describes this, Biblical Unitarian, in case you're not familiar with this uh, denominational group, when it comes to the Father, they believe there, that God is numerically one, there's only one of him, that he's the only true God there is, and that's it. When the Bible refers to God in the Old Testament, it's referring to God the Father, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, etc., and when it refers to um, the Son, it's referring to the human being known as Jesus who was born in the first century. He's not eternal. He did not coexist with God the Father in eternity past. He's not divine, although he has been glorified by God and sits at the right hand of the Father. We'll be talking about that tonight. So he's been exalted by the Father. He's an exalted human being, but he was not created by God in eternity past like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, like Arianism teaches nor is he a lesser god, a demigod, a little god, a mini-me, a lesser Yahweh, or some other nonsense like that. They simply believe that Jesus the Son is the human um, uh, agent of God, the human servant of God that was born in the first century, but now has been exalted by God and sits at the right hand of God and lives eternally with God, um, just like we will live eternally with God. And as far as the Holy Spirit, he is an impersonal force of action that God uses Impersonal, per, impersonal force of power that God uses to bestow uh, what we might call inspiration on humans or endow us with God's power, like you could kind of charge a battery from an electrical outlet or something to that effect. We are the battery in this example, and God is the electrical outlet. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit is just another um, name for God who is holy in his, pure, in his spirit. So when the Bible says the Holy Spirit, it's really just another way of saying God the Father, who is the Spirit and who is holy, and therefore He's the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical Unitarian perspective on Trinity, which again, they have three characters. God, they have God, they have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they don't see them as three persons like we Trinitarians do. So, with that introduction, let's turn to a new verse. Psalm 110, verse 1. And as I've already mentioned, this is the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament, bar none. This is quoted more often than any other of the Psalms uh, in the New Testament writings, and for good reason. And so what we're going to read about is we're first going to read through Biblical Unitarians' explanation of this non-Trinitarian Psalm from their perspective. So they're going to refute Trinitarian theology. They're going to tell you 
that this is not a Trinitarian psalm that has nothing to do with Jesus being divine or eternal like we Trinitarians believe. They're going to deconstruct Trinitarian theology using their own Unitarian perspective. And then after we read through this, which we might finish this one tonight, if not, we'll carry over to next week. But first, I'll read through their answer completely without inserting my own refutation or answer. And then after that, we'll begin to um, pick apart the verse, or the, 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 the chapter itself is very, very short. I think, what, seven or eight verses, if I remember, in Psalm 110. And so we might end up reading the entire chapter, but we'll begin to do what I call the structural analysis behind the passage. We'll look at certain key Hebrew words and phrases and grammar uh, aspects, what we might call the morphology of the Hebrew, of uh, the, 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 you know, the parts of speech in the sentence itself, uh, the breakdown of, of the syntax, the word order. Uh, we'll be looking at the original Hebrew. We'll look at the original Greek corresponding, uh, both in the New Testament as well as the original um, Greek Septuagint translation. We'll look for any variant manuscripts to see if between the manuscript families like the A, the B, the 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 the, the, um, the Aleph, right, um, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, the um, um, uh, what's, what's it called, the um, Alexandrinus, between the three main manuscript families. Um, we'll look for any variants like we typically do. And then we'll move from there in our structural analysis to looking at varying uh, translations of, of this particular passage uh, to see if there are any different ways that translators take the original language and uh, reproduce them in their own receptor language like we have in English. We'll look at that and see if that's relevant for our uh, understanding of the passage. And then from that, we'll begin to move into some more what we might call final um, uh refutation type arguments, discussions where we, we don't just assert that our position is right and theirs is wrong, right? It's not assertion versus assertion. That doesn't really solve anything. That's just opinion versus opinion. What we want to do is create and establish uh, refutation and actually truly uh, answering what the opinion is so that we can build a case for uh, a different perspective that we believe is more accurate. So in the end, that's where we're going to go. All right, so you guys ready? Let's first read the non-Trinitarian perspective. Again, this study is only 30 minutes long, so if it only captures biblical Unitarian's perspective in this first uh, video set, then I'm fine with that. We'll pick, we'll, this always extends into more than one week. Part one, part two, part three, you guys get the idea. All right, so Psalm 110, verse 1, out of the NIV. This is biblical Unitarian's website. Let me switch the view uh, real quick for you. This is easier for me to read. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's NIV. Now, right out of the gate, out of the English, we have two figures in the text. We have Lord A and Lord B. And we have to ascertain who are these two figures. Is one of them God and the other one a human king or is one of them God the Father and the other one God the Son? Or are both of them humans? Or are both is it is God having a conversation with himself like like he did in Genesis 1:26? Let us make man in our image, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What's going on? The Lord says to my Lord. Well, right away we know that this psalm was written by David because it tells us so in the book in the psalm itself. So we can ascertain that when it says my Lord, that there's actually three people in the conversation. There's the Lord. There's my Lord and the person who's actually doing the writing. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So let's let's begin to read 
biblical Unitarian's answer and then move from that into our own Trinitarian explanation. Here's what biblical Unitarian has to offer for the discussion. Again, the purpose of my uh, teaching here is not to throw biblical Unitarian or non-Trinitarian denominational groups, not to throw them under the bus and say, you guys are out. 2,000 years ago, that's what happened during the intense debates between Trinitarians and non-Trinitarian groups. The Arians and the, the uh, modalists uh, had their debates against the Trinitarians. And we know that for the most part, the Trinitarian groups won the argument because the creeds were formulated over along the lines of the Trinitarian belief system. And so uh, the, the Arians were labeled as heretical, the, the modalists were labeled as heretical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that that's the way history played out. I tend to be a little bit more relaxed when it comes to um, my interaction with non-Trinitarian folks. Uh, um, I mainly try to focus on, are they true believers or not? Do they genuinely name the name of Jesus as their Messiah? And if the answer is yes, then I'm less inclined to throw them under the bus and throw them out of my church because they don't believe in Trinity. Because in, in, the, in the end, a lot of what the Bible speaks on Trinity is still mysterious, even though it's been revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament, and the Incarnation is something that's already come and gone, per se, it, a lot of Trinity is still mysterious, right? There, we have a, what I like to term as information limitation, so that certain copious amounts of equivocation and ambiguity are created by the text because we don't have all the information laid out for us in a systematic fashion that will allow us to, to fill in all of the gaps. A lot of it is taken on faith, and we just trust that the Word of God is reliable and true and trustable, and that what the Holy Spirit um, superintended by giving us the text is the final say on the matter. We wish that God would have elaborated more, but we don't have that. So in light of all that, I affirm Trinity, but I'm not going to tell you that I completely understand how God could be one, yet three, yet one. Okay, I take it on faith that he is one, yet three, yet one. So let's have an open dialogue with the non-Trinitarian folks and see if we can come to a better understanding and appreciation of what we agree on. And yeah, we're going to have some disagreements, but we can agree to disagree on certain areas. But do we have to disfellowship with one another? Well, in many cases, we don't. All right. That's my precursor after that. I'm just going to keep reading and I'll try not to interject as much so I can get through the material. Trinitarian commentators frequently argued that the my Lord in this verse is the Hebrew word Adonai, another name for God, and is therefore proof of the divinity of the Messiah. I have to interject. I forgot to mention this part. What my aim is in reading through this non-Trinitarian discussion is to try to kind of for those who are kind of neutral, who haven't made a decision, who are kind of on the fence, leaning, you know, they, they could either go back and forth between Trinity versus non-Trinity. They're not decided yet. And they're, they've, they've happened upon this YouTube video or they're listening to this podcast in their iTunes store, this MP3, this audio teaching, or they're reading my blog on my, on my website or, you know, they happened upon one of my website articles, et cetera, et cetera. What I hope to do is to give you enough information that will push you in a direction of realizing that there are certain amount of strengths and weaknesses to any given theological position. And what my goal is to show that there are truths in the non-Trinitarian model of who God is. There are truths there. And yet at the same time, there are enough weaknesses or non-truths. I'm not going to call them outright lies because I don't believe they're malicious. But to the extent that there's enough misinformation or um, inaccurate information, or today we would call it fake news per se, there's enough 
um, inaccurate information that should cause us to say that this is not the best model to use, I would hope to be somewhat persuasive in helping you make a decision that God truly is Trinity, to see that there is enough um, detail in the Bible, even though there's a lot that's left out, but there's enough detail to help us come to an informed decision that, yes, this is the best way to understand God in this particular model of Trinity, that God is Trinity, that he's tripart, that he's one, yet three, yet one, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm bringing these details out. I'll say this in closing, and then I'll jump right into the study. I'm bringing these details out to not throw the uh, biblical Unitarians under the bus and to kick them out of my church, per se, but rather instead to to highlight some of the weaknesses of their argument in an effort to help those who are still kind of undecided in decision mode to help them come to a decision that, hmm, maybe that position isn't one that I want to hold to, right? There's a little bit of truth. There's a little bit of error. And so as I'm reading through their discussions, there's a lot that they that they bring to discussion that I agree with. But there's a lot that makes me scratch my head in question and go, hmm, is there a better way to say that? Is there a better way to understand what the Bible's bringing? Are they only seeing half of the story? It's like watching an accident that takes place at a intersection and you're only privy to one aspect because you can only see one street. You're only on one corner. You, can, you can't see around the corner. And so you might describe the accident in your perspective, but in reality, unless you were overhead and could see the total uh, accident scene from like, say, a helicopter perspective, you're not going to describe the entire accident. You're, there's always going to be something missing. So is that wrong? No, not really, but it's, it's incomplete. So my point is to show somewhat of the incomplete explanation of the non-Trinitarian model in an effort to hopefully show you that the Trinitarian model is a more complete version. All right, let's keep reading. Trinitarian commentators frequently argue that my Lord in this verse is the Hebrew word Adonai, another name for God, and is therefore proof of the divinity of the Messiah. Uh, this particular look, this verse this time is going to be heavily technical, a lot of Hebrew and Greek explanations, so I hope you don't get lost in this. It's because a lot of the discussion and argument and convincing proofs of the Trinity of the non-Trinitarian model rely heavily on um, what the original Hebrew and Greek underlying say. So they're going to build a lot of their argument on the original Hebrew and Greek. And so in the end, I'm going to show you that really, and I'm kind of spoiling that for you, the, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Um, actually, a lot of the original Hebrew and Greek doesn't really have to drive the understanding of what's going on. You you can actually come to a proper understanding without using the original Hebrew or Greek. But let's continue to look at this um, and see if there's a better way to understand this. So they continue. But not only is this not a valid argument, this verse is actually one of the great proofs of the complete humanity of the promised Messiah. So remember what I said earlier. What does biblical Unitarianism teach when it comes to the Son? That he, is, that he is not divine. He is not one with God in nature. He is not, he does not share the eternal nature of God from, the, um, from his beginning status. He now does share God's eternal nature uh, going off into eternity uh, future, just like we all will. Those of us who are true believers now have what we call... Um, I can't remember the exact uh, theological term, something like um, um, conditional, uh, um, 
conditional mor mortality, something that effect. In other words, our mortality is conditioned on whether or not we believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus as your uh, Lord and Savior, then you will exist into eternity with God for all eternity. So it's con But it's conditioned on whether or not you believe in Jesus as your Lord, if you are saved or not. Well, Jesus is kind of in the same boat, although he didn't have to believe in himself to be to to get this. So they don't believe he was um, existing in the past. They don't believe in a uh, an eternally existent Messiah. They believe in a human Messiah who came into history in the first century, and um, uh, thus he uh, 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 he's fully human, but he is exalted and sits at the right hand of God. So they say this is not a valid argument. It's actually a great proof of the complete humanity of the promised Messiah. Of course, let me interject again. We Trinitarians believe that Jesus is truly human. He's fully human. He's 100% human. But the mystery is that he's fully divine, truly divine, and 100% divine at the same time. We don't have a problem with that paradox. We don't have a problem with that seeming equivocation, with that what seems like a contradictory statements that Jesus is truly God and yet truly man. He's fully God and fully man. He's both at the same time because of the incarnation, because of his dual nature. All right. The Hebrew word translated my Lord is Adonai, pronounced, I'm sorry, is Adoni, pronounced A-D-O-N-E-E. -E. So be very careful to watch for the pronunciations in this particular explanation. Adonai, listen to the last vowel, I, Compared to Adoni, last vowel or second vowel, E. So be very careful to make this distinction because that's partially where this particular explanation, this um, um, perspective, is going to find a lot of its um, find a lot of its interpretation and understanding of of what uh, the Bible is offering to us. So the Hebrew word translated "my Lord." Remember, the Lord said to my Lord. So there's the Lord. And there's my Lord. There's two Lords. And they both have the same root Hebrew word. But what are the case endings? What is the, the form that shows up in the Bible text? There's the Lord and there's my Lord. There's Adonai and then there's Adoni. And they remind us that in the standard Hebrew texts, this word is always used in Scripture to describe human masters and lords, but never to describe God, Adoni. Now, let me interject and tell you that they're half correct. It is true that in the Adoni case form, the ending where it's E instead of I, where it sounds like Adoni instead of Adonai, in that case ending of that noun, it's true that this phrase Adoni refers exclusively to human masters and lords and never to God. But the root word Adon and even Adonai has uses in the Bible of both God, divine, and human masters. And the root word Adon is used both of similar, just simply God or of humans. So that's what I mean by they're half right. They're only telling part of the story. And are they malicious for that? Well, we don't know their intent. Honestly, I don't know if they're seeking. I mean, it depends. Are they, are they, are they purposely trying to hide something from us? They being the biblical interiors, I'm not ready to judge them at this point and say, "Hey, they are—they're definitely trying to hide something." That's not my—that's um, not my place. That's between them and God. But what I am saying is that by not revealing the, the, the entire picture, which we'll get to when we see the Trinitarian explanation, if one only reads this explanation, they're left with the conclusion that, "Hey, um, this is all there is to discussion." When in reality, there isn't. So they continue. 
This word is always used in scripture to describe human masters and lords, but never God. Unfortunately, they say, most Hebrew concordances and lexicons give only root words, which is true, and not the word that actually occurs in the Hebrew text. That's again, it's also true. That's what I mean by, by the case form. So we have a, a root word, both in Hebrew and in Greek, that might have maybe like three letters or four letters or etc. But then when we um when we flesh out that root word into its case form, like uh, whether it's as a noun or a verb or uh, we parse out the verbs into different form endings, right? Nouns end up being declined. So we talk about uh, declination of nouns and um, parsing of verbs. And so when we, in other words, we take the word be, uh, here's an English example. We, we take the word be, be, and we turn it into the word being or been or um, we took the word do and turned it into the word doing or done or did or so these are different forms of the same root word do or be or something like that. Um, so that's what we're talking about. The root word adon um, transforms into its various case uh, forms of adonai, adoni, etc., etc. So that's what we're talking about. And if you're only using a strong concordance, you're only going to see the root word. You're not going to see the actual word when you're looking at a Hebrew text or Greek text. You're not going to see the case form of that noun or verb. You're not going to see how it was um, declinated or parsed out, whether it's a noun or a verb, respectively. Okay, hope I'm not getting too technical with you, but it's unavoidable in some of these types of um, uh, teachings. Let's keep reading their answer. This is one reason when they're talking about what you see in your dictionary, Dexcon versus your Strong's Concordance versus what you actually read in the text. This is one reason why biblical research done by people using only tools such as a Strong's Concordance will often be limited. And I, I agree with that. That I also uh, recommend that if you're going to be a serious Bible student that you move beyond just using Strong's to familiarizing yourself with the original Hebrew, the original Greek, etc., etc. Um they continue, while this usually does not affect the interpretation of text, sometimes it makes a great deal of difference, such as in Psalm 110. So notice they're going to focus on the kingdom reports um, quote here. Notice that they're going to build a lot, they're going to begin to build a lot of their argument based on the case form of this word adon, the root word adon, and how that in one part of the verse it's adonai, and in the second part of the verse it's adoni. And they're going to explain to us now, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, how this impacts our interpretation of the text and understanding from the historical Jewish ancient Hebrew perspective, also carried into the Greek, and then our final modern uh, day understanding of, is this talking about a divine Lord or, uh, or a human Lord? All right, so let's go. They start with a quote. The Bible in Psalm 110 one actually gives the Messiah the title that never describes God. Notice they're very confident about using these kind of superlatives and absolutes. Never refers describes God or never uh, refers to anything other than a, a man or something like that. They're very confident about that. But I think that breaks down when we actually begin to research it for ourselves. In other words, their research was good, but I think they could have... Uh, uh, hurt themselves less by saying almost always or something like that instead. The word is Adoni, and in all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a superior who is human or occasionally angelic, created and not God. So Psalm 110.1 presents the clearest evidence that the Messiah is not God, 
but a supremely exalted man. All right, let's continue with biblical Unitarian. The difference between Adoni, which is Lord with a capital, I'm sorry, Lord with a lowercase l, indicating it's human usage of a man or an angel. So that's the visual cue. If you're not following with the Adonai Adoni, because that's a little too technical for you, at least follow along with when you're reading an article that in your Bible, if there's a capital L or a capital G for God or Lord, then it's referring to the divine being that is enthroned in heaven, the creator of the universe, the one and only God that exists, the one and only Lord that there is in that regards. But when we have a translation or you read an article and it's a lowercase L for Lord or lowercase G for God, then we're talking about a lesser being, whether it be an angelic being or a human being, that's what's going on. So Adoni is translated along lines of lowercase l-o-r-d, always used of men or angels. And according to this explanation, Adonai with the lowercase with the lowercase a here, which is used of God and sometimes written Adonai, Adonai, they say. Uh, we're talking about transliteration. So let me say Adonai, Adonai, Adonoi, those types of things. Um, don't get tripped up on transliteration. They say that this is critical to the understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, notice that they are right away building a lot of their theology on the technical aspect of the original Hebrew, the original Greek, and the pronunciation and the Masoretic tradition, which on the one hand, is not entirely wrong, nor is it entirely um, uh, un- Un, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not entirely um, uh, um, something that you want to shy away from. It's it's not not it's not unrecommended or non-recommended. It, I mean, it, it it's something that you want to do. You want to look at the original Hebrew and the Greek and things like that. You want you want to analyze the text text so that you know what you're dealing with. But the point I'm trying to make is, in the end, what we're going to find out, and this is again, I'm, in case you don't make it through the entire uh, all of the the parts that this particular study is going to break down into. What we're going to find is that we have a passage in the Bible that has been transmitted by Jewish people, by the Masoretic, the, the, the describable um, family, for thousands of years that has now um, resulted in a translation that's reliable and trustable, but at the same time is built on a tradition, which is the Masoretic tradition of writing down the Hebrew without the vowels written into the script so that in the end, we have a vowel system that's only verbal. And the verbal uh, interpretation is a tradition that's carried along from one generation to the next. So that if there is some interruption in that verbal transmission, then we end up with complications in interpretation. So the bottom line is we have the original Hebrew, which is available to us today, without the original vowel markings that show up in the text that Jesus in the first century disciples used. And here's where it boils down to our, um, where it matters to us as Trinitarians. What Bible did Jesus and the first century writers use? What Bibles, what translational texts, what manuscript traditions were available to them alongside of the verbal traditions that were carried along with that? Understand where I'm going with this? It's one thing to say that it shows up this way in the Hebrew script with a vowel marking supplied by a, a tradition. And it's another thing to say, but how was it received by Yeshua and the first 
uh, Christians and Messianic followers of Yeshua who had not only the original text without the vowel markings to include the Greek, but also they had the verbal uh, Masoretic tradition that was saying that this is the way you should um, pronounce these particular words. So that is always going to be in the background of this particular discussion. And I'll, I think I'll probably draw to a close with this particular um, aspect, and then we'll pick this up next week. The Biblical Unitarian website that we're going to read about doesn't seem to pay careful enough attention to the reality that not only are we dealing with Masoretic texts that don't have vowel markings originally, but that are supplied later on by the Masoretes. Indeed, today, if you pick up a modern um, Hebrew Bible, Tanakh or Torah or Pentateuch, or even some uh, modern uh, 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 Torah scrolls, et cetera, et cetera, they'll have little dots and dashes that are supplied after the fact by the Masoretic traditions that say this is how you are to pronounce certain words based on the oral tradition, the oral um, transmission, I, I mean, of how this word was said. Uh, in other words, what you read is one thing, how you say it might be something slightly different if you're not informed. So the biblical Unitarian uh, denomination doesn't seem to pay enough attention to that and give enough um, weight to that side of the discussion, which in the end can come back around and bite them and form a strong argument against their own theological position that Jesus is merely a human and cannot be divine. So that's kind of where we're going to be going in my defense of Trinity as we begin to look at this particular passage. Let me read this uh, sent this uh, paragraph, then I'll draw our study to a close. The difference between Adonai, Lord, always used of men or angels, and Adonai, which is used of God and sometimes written Adonai, is critical to the understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the BDB, considered by many to be the best available, makes the distinction between these words. Note how in BDB the word Adoni refers to lords, lower, lowercase l, that are not gods, capital G, that are not God, capital G, while another word Adonai refers to God with a capital G. And then they're going to begin to go into the BDB. And uh, we'll begin to look at this again next week as well, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Uh, I am humbled to be able to share these thoughts with the students who join me week after week. And those who are um, following along with my studies, um, continue to strengthen them and bless them and raise them up, give them a voice, give them the opportunity to share their witness with others around them so that they can also... Um, begin to be a light uh, uh, and, and a witness to people that they might meet. Continue, Lord, to protect us and bless us as we're um, anticipating your soon return as we count the days between Passover and Pentecost. Indeed, at the time of this recording, Pentecost is already upon us and we're enjoying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the commemoration of the giving of the words of Torah. We're enjoying these particular um, commemoration and celebrations, Lord. Thank you for uh, being faithful to your word and sending your spirit and preserving your word for us so that we can be equipped and we can be um, uh, uh, those who, who honor your name and, and build up your kingdom. Uh, continue to go with us as families, as individuals, and uh, protect us during these times. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.